chapter 8, beginning at verse 48. You may be wondering why are we standing. We stand out of reverence for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O gracious God and Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus. We ask for wisdom as we come to this portion of your word, that we would see the Lord Jesus in all of his glory, the glory that he manifested to us. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would be inclined to worship and to um, praise as we hear your word spoken to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now you may be seated. Please bear with me if my voice gives out. C.S. Lewis, in perhaps his most accessible book on apologetics, made a very famous argument for the divinity of Jesus, which has often been called lunatic, liar, or Lord. He said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. Now, this argument won't satisfy every critic, but it does very well at discrediting the mistaken notion that Jesus was merely a good teacher. Jesus has made some spectacular claims in John 7 and 8. And his audience concludes in this last section of chapter 8 that he is a demon-possessed or a liar. No one could make the kinds of claims that he makes except he was a lunatic or a liar or does he speak the truth? So those are the questions that we're asking this morning. Is Jesus a lunatic? That's what they first ask. Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? And we're going to spend some time looking at the two tactics that these Jews used to undermine Jesus' credibility by demonizing him and by calling him a liar. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the truth of the Lord's statements. Um, hope hoping, of course, to persuade you that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. So, is Jesus a lunatic? We notice from verses 37 through 47 that Jesus was delineating those who belonged to the true family of God and those who were children of the devil. They're marked by their certain works. It's evident who you belong to. You resemble your father. You either look like your father who is God or you look like your father who is the devil. One is characterized by lies and hatred and murder and the other is characterized by love and truth. And Jesus is separating those two things out. And, And if that wasn't coming from somebody like Jesus, that conversation would have been quite suspect. But after hearing that, the crowd doesn't really have a good comeback there's not really much they can say they're kind of like the on the schoolyard you know when somebody says insult something insulting and then you say i know you are but what am i right and then they say another insulting thing and and it can go on forever because you could just say i know you are but what am i i know you are but what am i you are of your father your devil i know you are but what am i That's essentially what they're saying here. Are we right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Yet Jesus has just condemned them as being part of the children of the devil. I know you are, but what am I? These responses are are very common, especially when we misunderstand somebody, right? We have a tendency to demonize them, which helps us to view them as our Enemies and enemies we objectify. Have you ever asked yourself how was it that uh, that uh, Germans were uh, some Germans were able to uh, obliterate a whole race of people? Well, they turned them into enemies, right? And when someone is an enemy, you don't look at them objectively. You certainly do not see them as made in the image of God. Adam Cahane, in his book Collaborating with the Enemy how to work with people you don't agree with or like or trust, he describes this phenomenon this way, quote, enemyfying is a way to understand and deal with real differences. It simplifies into black and white 
are overwhelmingly complex and multi-hued reality. And it thereby enables us to clarify what is going on and mobilize energies to deal with it. Our enemy-fying, which feels exciting and satisfying, even righteous and heroic, usually obscures rather than clarifies the reality of the challenges we face. It amplifies conflicts. It narrows the space for problem-solving and creativity, and it distracts us with unrealizable dreams of decisive victory from the real work we need to do. End quote. See, in order for these Jews to discredit Jesus' claims, they must first turn him into an enemy. Enemies can be hated. Enemies can be demonized. And they call him crazy in an attempt to undermine his credibility. And why do they do that? They're wanting to evade his criticisms They don't want what he says to be counted for anything. For them, Jesus is just a lunatic, easily dismissed. And they are known for their respectable, they are the religious elite. They're the ones that are known for their piety. Everybody looks up to them in the community and wants to be like them. We may look down at the Pharisees and the Jews who were over-scrupulous, but they were certainly not looked down upon in their time. They were lauded, and they were people wanted to emulate them. How often have we done something similar in our own context? And it's, of course, saddest when it happens in the church or in families. Most often, the conflict we face arises from this tendency. We misunderstand people's intentions and motives, and we imagine the worst of them. And we uh, justify our own behavior and advance our own positions, and that tends to objectify those we are in conflict with, stripping them of of their humanity, of our common togetherness as men and women created in the image of God, and turns them into enemies. The philosopher René Girard says that we create enemies as a way to avoid dealing with conflict within our communities or within ourselves. He says, quote, we control internal conflict by projecting our violence outside the community onto a scapegoat. The successful use of a scapegoat depends on the community's belief that they have found the cause and cure of their troubles in this enemy. Once the enemy is destroyed or expelled, the community experiences a sense of relief and calm is restored. But the calm is temporary since the scapegoat was not really the cause or the cure of the conflict that led to his expulsion. Too often, our identity, and in particular our sense of our own goodness, is dependent on being against someone or something else. We need the other to be wicked to know we are good. Whether or not they are actually wicked is beside the point. End quote. And of course, the clearest example of this is Jesus himself. He becomes the scapegoat, and they put all of their internal conflict onto him. These Jews are convinced that Jesus is the source of of their problems. 
And they want, to re- they want to be at that state of peace. And in order for them to do that, they need to expel the scapegoat. In less than six months from the moment of this text, of this confrontation in the temple, they will have Jesus killed outside of Jerusalem as a scapegoat. And after all, he must have a demon to make the kinds of claims that he makes. Their own high priest prophetically said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And as Pilate washes his hands in the murder of innocent Jesus, the crowds shout out together, his blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 27, 25. So in a very real sense, Jesus was the scapegoat bearing the sins of his people into the wilderness of death and providing a cathartic relief from the distress of sin and death. And that begins here in our text. It begins with him turning him into an enemy, demonizing him, calling him a lunatic to discredit him, to ostracize him from the community so that they can put all of their inner angst and turmoil upon him in his death. You see, these Jews began with the assumption that Jesus is a lunatic. And you can tell from Jesus' response that although he's not seeking honor, glory from them, they ought to give it to him. He really is worthy of honor and glory. And the danger of these Jews is the danger that faces all those who reject Jesus as Lord. Judgment by His Father. They couldn't have known that in crucifying Jesus, they were actually glorifying Jesus. They were actually manifesting the glory that God had given to His Son. For that was the very purpose for which He came, was to die and to purchase his people in his death. And then when the Father raised him from the dead, he vindicated him. That is, he declared him to be right. All of the things that led to his death were lies. But in his resurrection, his righteousness is confirmed. That is what Jesus means in verse 50. There is one who seeks my glory and he is my judge. He will vindicate me. Jesus is not self-seeking. He's not entering into this debate with him, trying to gain glory for himself. He is trying to show them the work that God has called him to do. Whenever we hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, we know we need to perk up and pay attention. I've used this example a lot, but it's worth repeating. It's like a mother who grabs her child by the cheeks and says, I want you to listen to me, right? Because, you know, you've always looked at your kids when you're telling them directions and you see their eyes wandering off in different ways and you know they're not listening. And so you grab them by the cheeks and you say, truly, truly, I have something very important to tell you. When Jesus says that, we pay attention and he makes a staggering promise. He says, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. Ever since the fall of man in sin, the whole world has been cursed with the verdict of death. We are each one of us born dying 
There is nothing you can do to prevent it. The body that starts so fresh and supple will within 70 to 100 years, maybe longer, disintegrate and return to the dust from which it was made. As much as people spend billions each year to slow that process down, and then they fret and fret over their health and aging, it is inevitable. You will die. And I'm sorry if I'm the first one to tell you this. And that makes Jesus' claims seem ludicrous. Although Jesus will, in a very few brief chapters, raise Lazarus from the dead, reversing that course of of death and giving life after the grave, Lazarus will be actually in the position that hopefully none of us will be in. He will die twice. What is Jesus talking about? Perhaps he is a lunatic. Who can offer that you will never see death? But Jesus is not talking about avoiding the temporary death of the body, but the verdict of eternal death in hell. Jesus is teaching here that there is a way to avoid getting what you deserve, which is death, by keeping His Word, which means he, someone believes His Word, cleaves to it, obeys and lives by it. It's equivalent to what he said in verse 31, that he abides in my word. He remains in my word. He keeps my word. By abiding in his word through our faith-filled obedience, Jesus promises that we will not taste that eternal death, which is a lot of all men outside of Jesus Christ. That's where we're all headed. Those are staggering claims. They are not the claims of a good moral teacher who is trying to give you 12 uh, laws for living or five steps for a healthier new year. That might be the teachings of a good teacher. These are either true or they're the ravings of a madman. And after demonizing Jesus, they think that they have destroyed his credibility. And to them, Jesus' response seems to confirm their suspicions. For if Jesus is not a lunatic, then he surely must be a liar. The question is, is Jesus a liar? Notice what they say in verse 52. They say, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Aha! Now we know. Nobody can say you'll never see death. Nobody has the power to do that. None of the rabbis have ever said anything like that. We know, we know, we are confident that you have a demon. And what's their reason? Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The answer is, in their minds, there's no way. And the prophets who died? Absolutely not. We revere these men. We whitewash their tombs every so often. Who do you make yourself out to be? Your claims are loony. 
You cannot say the things you are saying. You have to be lying. And they reason from their history that if Jesus' promises are true, then Abraham and the prophets would still be living. They're not with us because we're keeping up their tombs. We know they're dead. You're saying that Abraham, the greatest father of our faith, and all the prophets who proclaim the word of God, who are now dead, you're saying that they did not keep your word? You see what they're saying? The irony is in their ignorance. Remember what Jesus said to the Sadducees when they were trying to stump him about the resurrection? They came to him with that really tough case. And they thought, there's no way he's going to get out of this. We know a guy who had seven wives. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Or seven husbands. Whose wife is she going to be? Stumper, they'll never get him. There is no resurrection, obviously. Jesus says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. These Jews have proved by their misunderstanding of Jesus' promise what kind of death he's referring to. For some, this point is missed as we go all the way back to the fall. God promised that if Adam ate from the tree of which he told them not to eat, they would die. In the day they ate of it, they would die. And then Adam lives for 930 years. Wait a sec. I thought once he ate, he would die. Yes, he did in fact die that very day. Not physically, but spiritually. Death is much more than the dissolution of the body. We're not merely bodies. We are also spirits. We have a soul that will live on after our bodies have perished. The death that God promised Adam was a spiritual death, a separation from God. And even in some respects, a separation from himself from what he was truly created. The potential that was within him to realize is now marred in sin. For Adam, that physical death took some time, whereas for us it's comparatively quite short. But the irony is that these Jews think that they are alive. They think they're living right now. They're talking with Jesus and they think that's what counts. But Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is one of the most crucial things for us to see and the most easy for us to miss. How can you say I am dead when I feel very much alive? And how can Jesus offer a way out of death when even those exemplars of the faith like Abraham and the prophets all died? Is Jesus a liar? Or is there truth to what he claims? 
But notice that they think he is claiming much more than a ticket out of death, but they think he is offering a better word than Abraham or the prophets. Since they also spoke the word of God, but they still died. Jesus must be claiming superiority over them. And again, the irony is that Jesus is far superior to Abraham and the prophets. As the author of Hebrews makes very clear in his whole letter. See, Jesus' answer at first seems odd. He picks up the threads of his previous response. He defends himself against any spurious charges that he is trying to glorify himself. Jesus has already contended that he's not seeking his own glory in verse 50. But even though that is not Jesus' purpose, he will be glorified. However, it is the Father who will glorify Him, whom they claim to know. To know the Father requires receiving the Son, not maligning Him as a demon or discrediting Him as a liar. The real lie is not that Jesus offers eternal life. The real lie would be if Jesus claimed He did not know His Father. Notice in verse 55. But you have not known Him, that is, the Father. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His Word. These are the people who claim to know God. They know God, they say. But they don't recognize God the Son. How can you know God the Father if you do not know His Son? He will make this more and more explicit as the rest of John goes. The truth is that their father, Abraham, saw Jesus. He rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad, verse 56. But this truth causes them even more headaches, further solidifying in their minds that Jesus must be lying. You are not yet 50 years old. And you're telling us you saw Abraham? How absurd is this? In this last statement, Jesus really proves that he is both a liar and a lunatic, but he goes even further into territory that is blasphemous. They would have conceded well enough that Abraham was shown something of the messianic age when God covenanted him with him to make of him a great nation. God brought him out, as we read, and showed him all the stars and said, if you can count them, that will be your inheritance. And Abraham believed that promise. He rejoiced, you could say, in that promise. The problem was that Jesus did not claim that Abraham rejoiced because he saw the messianic age, but because he saw my days. Jesus' staggering claim is that all the hopes and joys of God's covenant promises to Abraham are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. That when he stands before them, he stands as the fulfillment of what God said to Abraham and the prophets. That what he told them would come to pass is now coming true in Jesus. They are rejoicing over these promises. They love them. They revere Abraham and all the prophets, and yet they reject the one who those 
promises were given for Jesus right in front of them. And they say he's a lunatic. He's a liar. We get another of Jesus' emphatic statements. Pay attention, Jesus says. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, before Abraham even existed, before he was a glimmer in his father's eyes, I was and am and have been and will be for all of eternity. My beginning precedes Abraham because I am a far superior to him. And at that, they want to kill him. Jesus is not saying that him and the Father are not two distinct persons, but that the Father and the Son share in divinity as God. The Athanasian Creed says this, Quote, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. Now Jesus has gone too far. And these Jews clearly understand Jesus' self-reference as blasphemy, and they take up stones to murder him right there. just as he said they were seeking to do. And this last statement seems to seal their assessment of him as either a lunatic or a liar, but is that the only response? Is that the only response that can be made to Jesus' claims? If Jesus is not demon-possessed and he's not a megalomaniac seeking after his own glory, then we have to reckon with the fact that he may be telling the truth. If we look again at his claims from a position of faith that is seeking understanding, we see that his promise of eternal life depends on our acceptance of him as Lord. Here is a man who claims to honor his father. Let's just set out the details of this text and see what the claims are that Jesus makes. In verse 48, he, he's a man who claims to honor his father who he identifies as the God these Jews claim to know. Verse 55. But they don't know him as Jesus does, as a son knows a father. But Jesus knows and honors the father by being in submission to his will, by keeping his word. Verse 55. He is a man that is not worried about gaining glory for himself. Verse 50 and 54. He doesn't make himself out to be something he's not. Even his claims to divinity are elusive. That is, they're understated. So although these Jews have tried to discredit him by making him out to be a lunatic and a liar, yet he speaks as one who has come from God. He speaks what he has seen and known. 
verse 38 and verse 55, and will in the end be vindicated by him that is the Father in glory, verse 50. I think, I think it would be quite easy to sympathize with these Jews. Imagine that a person showed up claiming that he was God. He was greater than your ancestors and prophets who spoke on behalf of God. He even claimed he could offer you the possibility of never dying. What would you think? You would probably think as these men did. This guy is a lunatic or a liar. But what if that same man then went to his death claiming he was dying to make it possible for all his people never to see death. And then after he was dead, he came back to life and people saw him walking around and talking with people. He gave them clarity about who he was. He opened up their scriptures and taught them. And then he gave them direction for the future. And while a group of his followers were watching, he ascended up into the clouds and promised that he would come in the same way that he left. Now, perhaps all these people faked it. Perhaps they all colluded together to fabricate this story and then to circulate it widely. Certainly possible. But most of of those eyewitnesses were all killed, propagating that myth. Now that seems crazy. When hard-pressed, usually people will easily recant superficial beliefs. If somebody puts a gun to my head and said, you are now an Eagles fan, I would be the best Eagles fan ever, right? Yeah, I love the Eagles. That's easy. You are not an Eagles fan. Yeah, I hate the Eagles. No problem, right? Now, now imagine somebody does that to you and all your friends, and you've all cleverly devised this myth about Jesus, this guy who was a good teacher, and you thought he was going to do something. You wanted to make something of yourself, so you wanted to be joined to him, and you all colluded together to make this lie. And they said, if you don't tell us the truth, we'll kill you. Would you, would you tell people that, yeah, we made it up? It was a ploy. Or would you take that to your grave? The likelihood that all 12, not, not, to, not least of all 120, or the many thousands that came to faith early on who were persecuted, the likelihood that they went to their death because of a lie is very, very slim. Why then do some not believe? Why do people come up with crazy notions like Jesus was a great moral teacher, but, but not the Christ and definitely not the Son of God? Answers to those questions are, are going to have to wait until we get to John chapter 9. And Jesus heals a man born blind. And the blindness of that man symbolizes the Pharisees who remain blind although they think they can see. And the irony of that account is that those who see are the ones who are actually blind, which Paul says results from the God of this world blinding them to keep them from seeing the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. My aim 
is then to persuade you today with the words that only the Spirit can make effectual to accept that Christ is Lord. For that is what it means to keep His words. Jesus emphatically promises that all those who keep His words will never see death. We've already noted that Jesus means by death. But I want to add a little to that. Jesus is not speaking about the temporal dissolution of this body in the decay of death. For that will surely happen to us all unless the Lord comes today. But the death he is referring to is a spiritual death of eternal separation from God and His glory. The flip side to that is the promise of eternal life, but not as disembodied spirits floating around on clouds and playing harps in an eternal worship service. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very great place to be. I like my body. I want to be in this world that God created. And we will be. When God restores everything, when we are resurrected and have new bodies that are no longer sinful, Paul puts it this way. Eternal life is not a stripping away of something. It's a further clothing you. He says in Second Corinthians 5, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. The tent he's talking about is your body. We don't have it. That's just a tent. We're going to have a building that's made by God. I will finally have that six pack. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed. By putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What we have to look forward to is an embodied life with God where we will see Him in all of His glory because we will be like Him. And in this state, there will be no more sin, no more sorrows, and no death physically or spiritually. If someone offers you that, wouldn't you do anything to get it? Well, what must you do to gain this promise? Keep His words. Which ones? Are we to be red-letter Christians? Peter said in 1 Peter 1.25, This word is the good news that was preached to you. This word that we keep is the gospel. It's a word not to be performed, but, but, but to be received to be treasured and to be shared with the world. It's a word of promise that in Christ, God was reconciling the world, not counting their trespasses against them. Now the receipt of this gift of eternal life, it does not entail that we are now free to live as carnal Christians. The freedom Christ offers that sets you at liberty from sin and death is freedom to obey. 
keeping the word of Christ is therefore accepting him as Savior and Lord. And as Lord, he holds sovereign sway over you, calling you to a life of holiness. And that means that we must surrender every aspect of our life to his direction. There is no portion that we hold back and say, this is mine. Your time is Christ's. Your money is Christ's. Your work is Christ. Your hobbies are Christ. Your children are Christ. Your marriage is Christ. Your Netflix account is Christ's. Your Facebook feed is Christ. Your emotions are Christ. Your will all belongs to Christ. As Kuiper once said, Abraham Kuiper, the famous Dutch theologian and prime minister and teacher and polymath, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You belong body and soul to your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But the trouble is we still like to claim areas as mine. We seek eternal life and temporary things. Like power or relationships or money or sex or entertainment or drugs or food or experiences. All of which may be good in their proper boundaries but will never ever lead you to eternal life. They will always disappoint and when we grasp onto them and hope that they will provide us only what Jesus can give they turn into oil in your hands and they slip away as Jim Elliot once said paraphrasing Jesus he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose if you hold on to your life you will lose it But if you give it up, you will gain the whole world. And God's promise that you will never see death will be true of you. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we who have confessed Christ as Lord have often walled Him off from sections of our life. Some of us were in the place of the Pharisees decrying Jesus as a lunatic or a liar. Some may be in that place this morning. We ask, Father, that you would open the eyes of their heart to receive Jesus as Lord, to keep his words, to walk in fellowship with him in the light so that they too may never taste death. And may we who have trusted in Christ and Call Him our Lord. May we not cordon off sections of our life from Him. But may we offer ourselves up to You freely, saying, all that we are belongs to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith grasps a hold of Christ here in the supper to receive these visible gospel words. They speak to your soul.